0: Good evening, and welcome, everybody. Um, I'm Paula Sen. I'm the director for the Programme for African Leadership here at the London School of Economics. And I'm really delighted to uh, welcome you all here tonight to hear uh, about COP17, the awakening of the climate change vulnerabilities. And to speak to us tonight, we're very fortunate to have with us um, Carl Hood, the Foreign Minister of Grenada who will address us for about 20 minutes, and then we will be joined by Leon Charles, who is the Chief Negotiator for EOSIS, has worked through the whole process from Copenhagen to Cancun and Durban for a 20 minute or so question and answer and discussion session. Now, I have to remind you of the hashtag, which I now can't remember. It's behind you, <laughs> LSE Grenada, for those of you who are tweeting. That's the hashtag to use, so uh, please feel free to tweet um, while uh, the minister takes his position
1: up at the letter. Thank you, minister. Good afternoon. Afternoon all. When I was asked to, to speak, and I looked at the topic, the awakening of the climate vulnerable, it reminded me of uh, one of those movies uh, one of those that spoke of the awakening of the machines, the rise of the machines. Uh, interestingly, we, when we speak about the about the climate and about vulnerable states, we often ask ourselves, "What is vulnerability?" And also, the question as whether or not this, this idea is just an idea or whether it's a, a reality has been a debate that has been going on for some time. There are some who, who think that we are just blowing hot air, while others believe really and, and true that there is a problem with our climate. Now, I like to think of what's happening with our climate and with the whole debate on climate change. In an analogy that I would use uh, from a story that I, was, uh, that I heard some time ago, a story about a pig and a chicken, that they both were Uh, looking at a sign which says bacon and eggs for breakfast (laughs) and the chicken was all excited and saying to the pig they are talking about us and the pig said to the chicken for you it's an offering for me it's a sacrifice you know you cannot get bacon from a life pig." But you get eggs from a live chicken. Chicken always could give an offering of an egg. To get bacon, the pig has to die. We as small island states are like the pig in this whole story. We are the ones who are being sacrificed on the altar of development. And I say development and I would put development in, in quotation. Because I do not think, I do not believe that in some ways that development is accepted in a holistic way. Development but at what cost? (coughs) Development, but whose development are we talking about? When we speak of development and poverty alleviation, whose are we speaking about? Are we speaking about development for the Larger, bigger countries are we speaking of development for smaller countries how do we measure development how do we measure progress these are questions that I think we need to bring on board and understand that to some if it's development at all costs who pays the bill and I must say here that we in the small island developing states are the one who pays the bill. Because uh, I remember my first experience in, in Cancun uh, when I became the minister responsible for foreign affairs and environment and meeting with Leon Charles who gave me all the briefing and going into Cancun <coughs> negotiations and sitting and listening to countries speaking about equitable access to atmospheric space. It sounds as a very nice phrase, doesn't it? That we are asking for equity. But when you break that down to equitable access to what? What they're actually saying to us is that the developed countries over the years have developed in a way that they have polluted the atmosphere. Now we want our rights our equitable rights to do the same thing we want equitable access to send our pollution in the atmosphere and we as small island states are supposed to accept that I'm sorry but we have said we've said it repeatedly that we cannot accept that we will not accept that Because we believe that there is need for all of us, the whole world community, to get on board together and to look at what's happening to the space that that we have been given, this earth that we have been given, and so that we can leave something for our children and our children's children. I want to point out to you the reality of the situation, because I don't think that some of us have seen the reality of the situation. The reality is that the Maldives have already relocated over 3,000 persons from lands that have become inundated with, with water. The reality is that Kiribati is negotiating with Fiji and has begun exporting people to Fiji because of the rise of water that is taking over the reality is, we in Grenada have seen the water table where we were extracting water from wells, from some wells, where water, the water has, become, has begun to become salty as the level of, 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 of seawater is rising. The reality is, in 2004, we experienced a hurricane that we haven't seen the last hurricane we had was in 1955 and then we've had one in 2004 that was so intense that it destroyed the, the, the quantitatively 250% of our GDP in four hours. But we are still trying to recover from that. The the, the reality is that two years ago we had a a drought, a drought that we have not seen, the country have never seen in its lifetime. The worst drought ever recorded in the country. And having rainfalls now, totally unseasonal. In the middle of the period that's supposed to be the dry period, we've had two floods, major floods in the dry season that's the reality that we face that's the real reality that we face and so we have had that as a question what is it that the larger countries want us to accept what is it should we agree to should we agree that they can develop at our expense now we understand that there is need for development, we understand that there is need for countries to help their people out of poverty, we understand that and we understand when people comes out come out of poverty, their need for energy rises, we understand all of that but we also understand another reality that we can develop in such a way so that we can leave something for our children and children, children Or we can develop in a way that doesn't care for tomorrow are we going to live only for today or or do we care about tomorrow and that's the question that I think was very foremost in our minds while we were in Durban we are talking about saving tomorrow today in Durban and we saw with frustration that even though the words were spoken the actions around the table was not such so as to save tomorrow today but we are trying trying to give to us as it were business as usual that we are going to just talk some talk and then walk away and say we had a good meeting but there was no outcome and so we had to do what we felt was necessary to get persons to understand that this is not an academic exercise it's much more than that It's a reality of our development. It's a developmental problem that needs to be addressed. Because why should I? Why should I subject my country to possible annihilation? For example, one of our countries in the Caribbean, Barbados, and I'm sure most of you have heard the name Barbados. (laughs) Barbados is practically flat. Now, think about a sea level rise uh, and it wouldn't take much for Barbados to go under because of the levels that Barbados is. Should I sit back and watch Barbados sink? No. I, 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 cannot, I, cannot, I cannot accept that. This is totally unacceptable for me. And this is why we, we've had to ask the question, what is it you want from us? Yes, we are small. Our island is 133 square miles, 103,000 persons. You can pick up uh, uh, everybody and fit them somewhere in in, in a little bar in London and (laughs) nobody knows they're there. (laughs) That's how small we are. That's the reality. But the other reality of that is there's a place called home. And it matters not whether it's big or small. And I'm sure those of you who may be from a small town, even though you live in a big country, you would always call that town home and want to go back to home. Because there's something about home that, 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 that speaks to you, something about my country that speaks to me. And no matter where I go, I still want to go back home. That, that's my home. The thought of losing home is totally unacceptable and the thought that others would not care whether or not we lose home is again unacceptable and this is why we, we had to ask some very hard questions and the problem of, within our negotiations is that it seemed to us that whenever we speak the hard words and ask the hard questions we are looked at as though we are the problem as though we are the ones who, who, who do not want uh, uh, the negotiation to go forward. We, we are being treated as though we, we are the stallers in the progress of other nations. But we are not trying to stall anything. We are saying treat us as equals. We are people too. We, this is our land. Treat us with that respect. And let me, let me also point a point out to us when you look at the whole the whole idea of of growth of of development, of livelihood, we we must come to the conclusion that it is totally impossible for a country to survive if the external forces against it is of such that mitigates against the survival, especially a small country, being small, and facing the the, the real existential threats of of climate change and knowing that you had nothing to do with that. You didn't cause the problems, but you're facing the real uh, result of the problems and yet those who have caused the problems are only going to say to you, oh, take $5 million and keep your mouth shut. I'd rather keep my mouth open and leave the money alone. Because I would not sell my future, my children's future, my nation's future, just for a few dollars. No matter how much it is. Because you cannot replace home. And that's the message that I think we need to bring that the message that I think that all of us need to have. We need to have that constructive engagement where we recognize each other, we respect each other, and so that we can build together. In Durban, we have made some progress, but not much progress. We are still not very uh, happy that they, right now the some of the developed countries are trying to rewrite what happened in Durban or trying to recreate uh, a different scenario whereby instead of um, raising up the level of of ambition where mitigation is concerned, is looking towards 2020 as a possible start, where all the the, the science is saying to us by 2015, 2018, if you don't do it, you may reach to the point of no return. It seems that they still haven't got it. And so we would continue to speak and continue to pursue until we get a total buy-in to the problems that faces us. As I was saying, we, I, I could speak for the next two hours, if given a chance. But I know we just have 45 minutes, and we want to leave um, time so that we can ask questions. Uh, so let let me close by saying that one of the things that we were able to do and which we would continue to press on with is f- forming alliances. As small island states, we are able to form alliances with, with the with the EU to stand together in this fight. And I, I really want to thank the EU for um, for seeing that it is not just our problem, but all of our problem, And so we are able to form these alliance that we could speak together with the same voice to try to bring to the minds of persons, uh, uh, those who are not listening, the, the fact that what we want is sustainable development with the emphasis on sustainable. Not just development, but sustainable development. We want development that would not harm the planet. We want development that would not harm our neighbors. For example, you I mean every country that I know, you cannot build your house and allow your water to run off into a neighbor's yard. Your wastewater should not run off in the neighbor's yard. There are zoning problems there. <laughs> There are serious problems here. And they will say to you, we cannot accept your building. You must control your waste. We cannot allow that the waste of the developed world to be our problem to clean up. And we cannot accept just mere adaptation funds without strong mitigating actions. Because, and I close with this, something that I've learned as a child when we were doing our little experiments in, in, in science where you take a frog and you put a frog in a pot of water and you light a stove under the frog and the frog would adapt to the changing uh, condition of the water until it dies. Funny thing, the frog thinks he could adapt, but there comes a point when adaptation cannot continue. Think about the dinosaurs; they couldn't adapt after a while. They extinct. And adaptation without mitigation is asking for extinction. Well, that's that's a nice equation, isn't it? But. What we want is to adapt to what has already taken place, but we want strong mitigating action so that it do not continue, so that we could have a chance of survival. Thank you very much for listening. And we open for questions.
0: Mr. Yes, would you like to stand up for the questions, or would you like to sit down? So, we'll let you stay with the stand if that's okay with you. I had uh, resisted making many opening comments because we had so, such little time, but I do just want to, um, I think, underline some of the comments that uh, His Excellency has made. I think if you've never been outside the West or the North, to really understand the situation of small island states is quite a challenge. And I think that's what's come out in the politics you talk about, of the developed and the developing, the polluters and those paying the price now. You mentioned Barbados as being low-lying, the Maldives you also mentioned, you know. Mm -hmm. The salination and the receding shorelines are absolutely an immediate threat now to the people there. And Tuvalu also is relocating its population. The, The king tides now are coming into people's sitting rooms which I didn't used to do 30, 40 years ago. I think that's, that's one of the biggest challenge for challenges for the most vulnerable states is to get mm-hmm. a real understanding of what that vulnerability <coughs> means in its immediate existential threat that it offers now. Mm-hmm. We have about 20 minutes for question and answer and discussion mm-hmm. session. Um, and the other thing I need to say to you is this session is being uh, recorded for <coughs> podcasts later. Uh, I see one hand here from Sheila, somebody else, I don't know, two, three. Minister, I'll take two at a time, if that's okay with you. Thank you very much. Um, Just wanted to say, I come from a small island state on the other side of the continent, Mauritius, um, and uh, very um, interested in hearing about uh, your um, issues raised in terms of alliances, I would also always want to have somewhere to go, home, even as I roam about the world. And it's very important. What would be the concrete actions in terms of um, how to mitigate the effects of climate change in the name of sustainable development? And what are the alliances with other smaller um, island states like my own? Thanks. Hi, my name is uh, Robin Webster, and I write for a website called Carbon Brief about climate and energy issues. Um, first, I wanted to say thanks for your um, talk. I found it very moving. Um, I had a question. Sometimes we debate with people here who say it doesn't really matter what we do in the UK. We're only 2% of emissions. Uh, you know, whether we build wind farms or try and reduce our emissions here doesn't matter on the global stage, and we should be concentrating on developing technologies rather than thinking about our missions here in this country. I was interested from your experience of the international negotiations is that true? Like, When you're actually there, when you're negotiating, does it matter what happens in the UK? What Does it matter what's happening in Germany? What impact does that have on the, on the negotiations?
1: Alright. Uh, let, let me take the both together because I, I think with the both um, and, and Leon I would, I, would have to, I would have to ask you to, to work with me here. Now I'm sure you've heard about the straw that broke the camel's back. Right. Every bit of emission is important because it's not something that you could take back or, or that you could, you could somehow hope that it goes away. So 2% <coughs> is, better than, is worse than no percent. So, even if it's 2% of the world's emission, then you have to quantify how much is the world emission, how much does 2% re, um, represent. And so, it's, to say it's only 2% is like saying to uh, 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 a woman who is um, six weeks or, or, or pregnant, say you're just slightly pregnant.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> now, it's either you are or you're not. Either you're polluting or you're not polluting. Either you're working towards um, a green, uh, a green world or you're not working towards that. And we are saying it's best we work for uh, a development that does not pollute, because whatever pollution you put out in the atmosphere, it's there and you can't take it back. All right. Now, in speaking of alliances, what 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 are you trying to do? Is is trying to build uh, to get things to become, to come to the place where there's a critical mass of, of voices, of countries raised together against what is happening in the world. And um, we cannot allow the bigger players or, or the bigger countries to hog the spotlight while the smaller ones are not heard. And so smaller ones like ours have to speak louder and firmer because we are small. It's like a chihuahua who, who makes a <laughs> lot of noise, <laughs> and it's not big, but they can be very, very aggressive. though small. We, we have to make enough noise, because again, as I said, home is, is, is a place that you, you always want, and you, you can't. Losing home is unthinkable. Uh, to think that you cannot go back there, that to me is, is, is beyond reason it's unthinkable but to think that someone else is going to do something that is going to cause you not to be able to go back to the place that you love you know we even thought about the question about whether or not that this can be termed a crime and as the international court of justice to look at that and ask is that a crime can countries be prosecuted for doing that can we raise the, the the dialogue to such a point where it becomes something that is totally unacceptable for any country to do that to the other one? Because to me, it's it, it to me is all or nothing. Either we work together to achieve a, a, a proper goal or we allow countries to die, which is something that we really cannot accept. Right. Mm, you like to
0: say something? You want, I think, first um, think, I think well, good afternoon
2: and thank you very much for being part of the audience. I think it's good to see um, so many of you around. Minister, I want to speak, I think, on the question of the emissions that every, every, every tonne of carbon comes. I want to spend a little time on the question of alliances, just to strengthen what the Minister has said. You have to understand the context of the negotiations, that when you go in there, it's one co- supposed to be one country, one vote. But when the negotiations commence, you have, for example, the United States who will have a, a delegation of 200 with lawyers, economists, technicians, and everything else. And then you have Mauritius for a delegation of two. <laughs> and then you have, sometimes, as many as 20 sessions running concurrently, mm. The US can do it because they have specialists on every issue. So they have people in the 20 <coughs> sessions. When they run into the night, they do shifts. People sleep, some come in in the late night, and they all have people who are fresh. Mauritius has two questions, One, to figure out which of the 20 sessions should I go to, and how long, how many days can I go without sleep? last three <coughs> or four days. we so really go through the night all the time. If you follow the news on Dublin, Durban finished the Sunday morning mm-hmm. when you we were supposed to finish the Friday night. And from since about a Wednesday we went deep into the night, the last two nights got two, three hours sleep and they keep going. Small islands have the same people all the time. The large delegations have rotating staff who are all this fresh. So <coughs> while it's theoretically supposed to be one country, one vote, you start with this great imbalance. Add to that the fact that we're dealing with a very technical negotiating issue lots of science. They have their researchers. Does Mauritius have a researcher <coughs> The answer is no. So then the question comes up, for us to be able to combat them, we also have to have information on the same level, which, and to be able to talk to them at their level. And therefore, the only way which we can do it as vulnerable countries more island states Come is together. to use the expertise across the countries. So for example, in EOSIS, we have the three countries. When we did the math for the 3 by 2, it was 86. If you offer a team, all of a sudden, Mauritius no longer has two point two delegates. We has 86 delegates because we assign different issues to the different countries. And therefore, just from the sheer practicality and logistics of participating, it's important that countries come together as groupings mm-hmm. to level the playing field. So that, that's the first important um, the reason why the alliances are strategically important. Beyond that, though, the minister made the point about critical mass. You need to get a critical mass of countries supporting a particular issue for 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 acceptance to take place. However, when the United States speaks, and I'm using that not because they're the bad guys, but just as an example of the power imbalance, when they speak, if Mauritius speaks after, what Mauritius, what the United States has said carries a lot more weight from a decision-making point of view than what Mauritius has to say. So when the United States speak, we need to get 10 Mauritius to speak to balance the, the, poor, the poor relations. And therefore, for example, as we began to advocate for 1.5, for example, initially it was just the AOC countries, the 4th eu countries advocating for it. And then the G20 countries advocating for two degrees. But their 20 countries had a lot stronger voice than our 43 countries. So what we ended up doing was mobilizing other vulnerable groups. We got the LDCs to join us. We got the Central American countries to join us. And right now, we have over 100 countries who, since Copenhagen, have been advocating for 1.5 degrees. The net result of that was that in Copenhagen, even though the G20 came there and wanted to stick for 2 degrees, we were able to get them to agree that we needed to look at the science of 1.5. And there's a review of the 1.5 target, which is not starting this year and should be finished by 2014. But you're only able to do that by developing the critical mass of over 100 countries to call for it to combat the 20 G20 20 countries who wanted the two degrees. So the second reason why we must have this strategic networking is that we need to get enough voices in the room advocating support for a particular issue because whether we like it or not, there are practical logistical disadvantages we start at and the practical power disadvantages we start at. But when you add that to the fact that some of the big countries use the economic power. For example, if we have very strong negotiators, we sometimes go to our governments and say, look, negotiate X is problematic and could harm your our relationship. I and mean, we've had examples where negotiators have been pulled from negotiating teams because powerful countries have complained about them. Fortunately, my minister supports me, so I've never had that problem. But we've had continued to have that problem. And we can only, only come to these things by developing strategic alliances where we have sufficient critical mass so that these strategies cannot be used against us. So that is why it is critical, as the minister said, that they have, we had alliances in Durban, and we had a very good alliance with the EU, um, the LDCs, and some of the other independent countries. And going forward from here, to consolidate governance it's critical that we continue to strengthen these advances. Because that is only hope we will really get the, 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 the real needs being addressed <coughs> and the real problem being addressed in a manner that is going to benefit everyone. Thank
0: you. Okay, thank you. I think we'll probably have time just for two more questions. And the hands that I saw were the gentleman at the back and the gentleman here. Uh, and if you could make them short, then there might be time for more. I don't know.
3: Hi, my name's Michael. Um, I'm a graduate student here at the LSC and I'm from the United States. So unfortunately, back in America, I've interacted with a lot of people who, dis- who deny the science behind uh, climate change. So my question is, do any of the um, people at the negotiations actually have the audacity to deny the science? And if they do deny the science, what do you say to them? Mike Hutchinson from the CNC Foundation. Um, the idea of a global deal based on a, a science based rationale seems to be a basis for a future deal. Mm-hmm. Without a kind of logical argument for the basis of an agreement, it's hard to know how one can create alliances. And um, people like Ross Garno, who wrote in a Garner review in 2008, came down clearly saying that contraction and convergence is a the only basis he can see ahead for a viable climate deal. I'd be interested in your thoughts about that. That uh, principle. Let me first. Let me first
1: um, begin with your question, and let Leon answer yours. We do not deny logic, and especially sitting here in this school. I know you deal a lot with logics. (coughs) You don't deny logics. You don't deny realities. You don't deny what's right before you. (coughs) To me, getting a deal, a climate deal, has to be based upon the available science that is before you. You cannot deny the numbers. The numbers are staring you in the face. And you chop it you spin it, you turn it upside down, it's still a very same thing. That there is a present reality. And apart from the numbers, there is a reality on the ground. <coughs> As we spoke about the countries that are facing these problems, mm-hmm. our own country that is facing the the saltiness that is getting into the water table. This doesn't happen overnight, this doesn't happen by chance. It's a reality that we face. So any deal that has to make sense has to make sense based upon the reality and the science that is before us nothing else is going to make sense because (coughs) all you try to do then is try to spin something that cannot be spun and the end result would be that you become like the ostrich stick your head in the sand and pretend it's not there and if you pretend long enough you hope it will go away this is not going
2: away. Uh, OK, on um, the question of the convergence, <coughs> and convergence, mm-hmm. um, are you referring to the proposal where we bring everybody to our room two tons of carbon per person over time?
3: Yes, this, this doesn't say, let's do that. It says, let's react to the available carbon space, mm-hmm. the finite carbon budget, mm-hmm. share it on a per capita entitlement basis, mm-hmm. which would create pressure for developed countries to cut emissions fast give some space for developing countries to increase emissions until everybody falls down within the, the overall budget uh, it's backed by many faith leaders by many, by the medical profession by people like Ross Garno and, and Stone has a strange view, he seems to shift his goalposts on, on this one but um, it has increasing support, that's, that's the key thing it's a very equitable and, and um, Powerful idea, I believe.
2: Okay. Um, our approach is that we have not really been using these kinds of models. I know India and so have been using it because it, it favors their argument that their per capita um, emissions is yeah. much lower than the developed world and therefore they need room to grow. Our approach has been look, we have a problem. The problem is that there is too much emissions over there and it has to be reduced. We've had a historical track record of emissions coming from different countries. The important point going forward, though, is that we all have to, have to come together to reduce emissions going forward, because what happens historically is already there. And therefore, we have been trying to see if we can use an approach where p- parties, countries, come together and try to all move on a low development pathway, while still are try to develop technology. So contractual and convergence is something which may be possible in the long term, but we don't see it necessary to start with a contractual and convergence objective. There are many other frameworks. There is the greenhouse development, there the framework, and so on. There are other frameworks which could be used. The important thing at this point is to start the process. If we look, for example, at the Montreal protocol with the ozone, what has happened is that once the process has started, the reductions have actually taken place much faster than anticipated. The technology has actually moved much faster than anticipated. And if you look at the history of technological development, one technological leap always lays the basis for another technological leap. So converg- contractional convergence is something that maybe come in place down the line. But what's important now is to get the process started, get the world-oriented, and then respond as you move over time. And if, down the line, we get to the point where we could begin, to, or we need to look at contractional convergence, we could look at it, but the modeling we have done is not based on that. It's based on countries using their mitigation potential, using low-carbon technologies, and bringing it down as rapidly as possible in keeping with economic realism. And the modeling we have shows that this is feasible, and it could be done once we start early enough and peak before 2020. If we peak after 2020, the rate of decline required too steep and too expensive to be feasible, so that's why we must be by 2017, 2018, and not post 2020.
1: Okay. The, the, the question about it? either from the
2: oh, sorry, the
1: US. No, I don't
2: think anyone is brave enough to come. We don't have <laughs> that problem,
0: okay. I, I see more hands up, but I know uh, Mr. Hood has to leave at 5.45, so I'm not sure we can. Fix I, I, I don't it. mind Do staying. You can take another round. Yeah. Okay, lovely. <laughs> I think they will be for you. So I'll go to the two people here.
4: Hi. Um, so I was very interested in your talk about the idea of losing your home. And within the concept of losing your home, you lose not only ways of life, but you also lose a legitimate political identity and political structure. And so what I'm wondering is, for those people who are having to be relocated, what is, is there hope that they can manage to maintain some of their political and civic and social practices and rights as things move forward in less (laughs) desirable ways? That's it everybody,
1: yeah, okay. Good afternoon. My name is Mark Bonica, and I go to Richmond University. I'm writing
4: my master's thesis on uh, the Durban's pre-negotiations, and in particular focusing on the transitional committee meetings. Um, I have two questions for you. Um, the first one is, did Grenada play a role um, in facilitating the, um, uh, the Durban's pr- uh, negotiations? during the pre negotiations. Yes. Can you repeat the question? Uh did Grenada play a role during the pre negotiations uh process mm-hmm. that facilitating the negotiations themselves.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. But that, that's a simple answer, yes. <laughs> 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 at at the time Grenada was chair of OSIS. Yeah, the islands of small island states and um, our negotiators, definitely has been to all the meetings um, going leading up to, to Durban and outlining the the realities that we face and trying to keep the small and developing states focused. Um, Leon would talk, but let me answer your question. That is the problem. That is the real problem. Being relocated from your home is one thing, but losing your identity is another. And no matter where you go that that part of you that identity is difficult to recreate even if land is provided for you to say okay say Grenada you're 130 square miles I'm going to find 130 square miles in the UK and give that to you to repart to move all your people it's not the same it's not the same island life is not the same where you are is not the same they, they your whole, your whole uh, makeup, your, your, your practices, your everything is, is different. It, it cannot be the same. So that's why it is such an unthinkable thing to lose your home, to lose your, your habitat, as it were. Um, and this is the thing that I, I, w- I would wish that the, the world would understand, that you cannot just move a person because there's too much to move and there's something some intangibles that you really can't move uh, s- some i don't know how to call it but but you you are linked to that place in such a way that you really can't move that and you'll always feel that that you've you lost some invaluable thing that you would never be able to retrieve this is what we we always need to bring to the minds of persons so so to move a an island is you don't, think, you don't think about
2: that. Okay, let me just add to the answer on okay. the, the pre-negotiation process. Yes. You asked specifically about the Transcom. Yeah. Right. So I answer that first I'll give mm. you a broader answer. The Transitional Committee was set up in Cancun with specific representation. So, for example, the Alliance of Small Island States, whom we represent, was in two seats we assigned those two seats to through our internal processes to barbados and samoa so the countries which attended the meetings were barbados and samoa grenada did not attend the Transcom meeting but grenada is the chair basis and as part of our role as chair we would manage the process so for example the inputs which our representatives would make a Transcom first of all, have to be cleared with the group and cleared with us as chair. And we, we on a continuous basis, we get reports from them, providing guidance to them what positions they will take, and so on. So on the transform itself, we neither did not sit at a meeting, but coordinated as part of our role as OSS chair. There were other pre-negotiation meetings, though, most of them, ministerial sessions, sessions on mitigation and attention and so on, which we, we, we participated in a direct capacity as well as participating in a role as chair with other representatives from EOCs. Because we have a structure within EOCs where the forty three countries we've worked ourselves very quickly into the, into thematic groups which handle each of the each of the negotiating areas. So we have one for mitigation, one for adaptation, one for finance, etc. And uh, depending on the topic being discussed, the country handling the subject area would be given first preference. And if there's a second person, we come along. And in all cases, we coordinated the positions being, being, being taken at all of those meetings. So I think that answers the question. Yeah, thank and you very good. much.
0: Okay. Minister, yeah, do, you well, thank you. For, do you have time for any more? Or do you need to go <laughs> <laughs>
1: We do need to go. Well, let's, let's, let's stay, let's stay The
4: Malaysian in is waiting from last time.
1: we <laughs> beat
4: Shall I take Hi, my name is Lina Han and I'm a student here. I'd like—I have a question to Leon Charles. I'd like to know. Um, I'd like to hear maybe a brief outlook on the negotiations till 2015 for the legally binding agreement. And specifically, when I hear someone talking for um, G7 on behalf of G77 and China, and how far can I say that they are actually speaking on behalf of Grenada too, which is also a member of G77 in China? And and, and other small island states, and 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 how far how far would you say that, like until still Durban or maybe all, also uh, already earlier, there's actually been a split, and you've confronted, the, the basic countries openly and pushed them to 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 a legally binding agreement. Can I just, can I just repeat
2: the part of the question about
4: 2015? Um, yeah, in the. I mean, if you could briefly out- outline the, the big um, uh, milestones in terms of negotiations that you see mm-hmm. that are that um I think it was some pretty bad
0: yes. And then I think that will be the last question. Hi, Chris Mayne out at um, I was wondering if you think the Durban Platform represents an erosion of the principle of common but uh, differentiated responsibilities due to its legal symmetry and the implications of that. Okay.
2: And to the second question, first, um, to what extent does the Durban Platform represent the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities? One of the challenges going into negotiations in Durban is the interpretation of the CBDR principle, where developed countries were saying, especially in the United States, and to a lesser extent, the EU, that the CBDR principle needs to be reinterpreted in the context of current socioeconomic and political dynamics. On the other hand, uh, the developing countries, especially led by the basic countries, India and um, China and so on, were saying that CBDR casting is casting stone. And uh, what CBDR means is that developed countries must move first and they must provide finance. And it's only under these conditions that developing countries should take action. So there was more or less a dichotomy between the two on the interpretation of CBDR. From our all, all point of view as AOSIS, we see CBDR as a living principle, which basically means that countries who have the capacity to act should act. The extent to which you act depends on your capacity. So it does not say that India should do the same as the United States, but it doesn't say that India should do nothing. It says that everybody should do something, but what you do, even small island states, what you do depends on your capacity. So, for example, in small island states, a number of them have actually set renewable energy targets. Where they're going to reduce emissions by 20% by 2020 and 2030. Even though we know that even though if every cell stopped emitting every ounce of greenhouse gas emissions, it makes no difference. Because the, the, the emissions of all the small island states together is 0.49% of global emissions. But despite that, we have still decided to take an action because at the end, every ton of carbon comes. And that is how we view CBDR. So what Durban has done is not dispense with CBDR, because CBDR is part of the convention. It cannot be dispensed. What Durban has done is provide a space for an, a reflection of CBDR and what does CBDR mean in the emerging context. So what you're going to see is that there's going to be quite a lot of debate on how we interpret CBDR, especially in the context of equity, because Equity is also a critical issue, which has been raised by developing countries, and which we think needs to also to be considered. So, I think what you will coming out of it is um, probably a, a reinterpretation or updating of the interpretation of CBDR and all these operational acts. But CBDR will not be taken off the table because it is an inherent part of the Climate Change Convention and has to be dealt with. In terms of your questions on the milestones from North 2015, 2015. Um, At the end of this year, there's a COP in Qatar, which is expected to agree on the modalities for the review of the long-term global goal from 2 to 1.5, which is expected to look at short-term mitigation ambition targets, which is expected to agree on the second commitment period of the Kyoto Protocol, and which is expected to look at a mechanism for long-term addressing loss and damage by developing countries. So these are the big four issues. Which you would see highlighted coming out of Qatar, plus probably some more on finance in terms of how do we approach the long-term sources of finance for the Green Climate Fund. Following that, the next big date is going to revolve around the 2017 review. The review timeline still has not been agreed upon, but given that the decision on on how you respond to the review should come in 2015. It means that 2014 should probably be looking at the outcome of the review, so that <coughs> the political negotiation The all should take place in 2015. At the same time, the ADP, which is the working group on the Durban platform to negotiate the new legal agreement, is also going to be set up this year. And the agreement in Durban is that a new legal agreement should be negotiated no later than 2015. So you're going to see the 2014-2015 period as the next major milestone. And alongside that, you'll have the IPCC Fifth Assessment Report coming out from 2013 into 2014. So 2013 may be a quiet year. And 2014, you're going to see a lot of probably technical decisions <coughs> coming down to preempt or to lay the basis for political negotiations in 2015 as to what happens from there. How, what should it be the new long-term goal? What should be the new legal agreement? What should we do about emissions? And should we be starting post-2020? Or should we be starting immediately? I think that's going to be a big question that will be debated in twenty fifteen. Should we bring forward implementation to as early as possible after twenty fifteen, given what the science is going to tell us, which a lot of us already know, is going to be a much harsher um, report card than we had in the AR4. It's going to come out of the AR5. And therefore, is there a need for increased urgency from 2015? So we cannot wait until 2020 to start looking after it. That's more as short-term. Timeline. Um, is there a script in G seventy seven? No. Any group has internal dynamics and a group of 10 if is 43 countries would have differences of opinion. A group of 133 countries spanning countries from as rich as China to as poor as Lesotho and so on would have differences of opinion. And how the groups handle differences is that you simply work on the issues which you have an agreement on. And those which you cannot agree on, you agree to disagree, and you take individual positions. So the group will only take a position where there's a common interest, where there isn't a common interest individual countries will speak their language. That does not mean there is disunity. It's just the mechanism. In unity, there is strength. Only if we use the strength, we use it, and we cannot use it. We accept it and work at individual countries. OK? Thank you.
0: In
1: wrapping up, I just want to thank Thank you for showing interest in this, in, in, in the plight of small agencies. I, I would hope that coming out of, of this, that some of you here will have influence with your own, your your own um, country. Um, I know, uh, may, maybe in the next five to ten years, some of you may be leaders in your country, and um, I'm very happy to have spoken to you. To lay a seed here that you would work upon, <laughs> later on. right, and um, and, I, and I, I know that uh, having having understood the, the the real situation, the real fight that is faced by us more, I would say that you will do your best to ensure that we um, will still have something that we can call home. There are some that we, at this point in time, there is not much we can do for the blue line states that have already been um, in the with water but we hope that we'll be able to stop that um, progress is not a word
0: The yeah. <laughs> deterioration
1: <laughs> <Yeah. Detiburation. laughs> yeah. and, and be able to help all of us to continue to have a land that we can call home thank you again for your attention and uh, we really do appreciate that
0: Uh, on the Minister Hood and Leon Charles Ford, joining us at the LSE where we have specialist interests in climate change through the Grantham Institute. And I think what your talk allowed us or reminded us to do was to go beyond the science and the economics which tend to dominate the debate, but to remember the human dimensions of climate change, the social and cultural heritage, and issues of displacement and statelessness. So thank you very much for that. And thank you also for staying longer than you had planned.